0: Good morning, church. There you go. I knew you were. Good morning if you're watching online. Uh, glad you're there. My name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor, and we are starting a brand new series called "The Gospel According to Genesis Season one. And so uh, season one, why season one? The idea behind it is we're going to be in a long, no, I'm just kidding. Um, The idea behind it is similar to a Netflix series where you've got different seasons that roll through the book of Genesis. And so what you'll notice as you move through the book of Genesis together, season one in the book of Genesis is 11 chapters. It's actually called the prologue. Your Bible doesn't say that, but historically, that's what the first 11 chapters of Genesis is. Most people would say all of the book of Genesis is the prologue, but really the prologue to the prologue is the first 11 chapters. And a prologue really is just introductory information. It's information you need at the very beginning so it informs for you the rest of the story. And Genesis, those first 11 chapters are the prologue. And really it's not just the prologue again to Genesis, it's to the entire Bible. So if you don't understand your Bible, there's a good chance you don't understand the first 11 chapters, because that's what informs the rest. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be talking about God. In Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be talking about mankind. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to talk about sin. Genesis chapter 3, 15, just that one verse, we're going to cover redemption. And then once you get to 4 and 5, civilizations. 6 through 9 are the judgments. 10 and 11 is nations, ethnicities, and religions. It all sets the stage... For what is to come in the rest of your Bible. Those first 11 chapters are the prologue. It's season one. So the purpose of the book of Genesis, in case you're new to your Bible, it's really God's sovereign purposes over this world. That's the reason why Genesis exists. That word sovereign is the idea of supreme power or authority. And and in many ways, the book of Genesis sort of frames life by the very first verse of the entire book. It frames all of our human existence, and it really addresses some of the most fundamental questions that people inside the faith and people outside the faith have. Questions like, how did this world come into being? Where did it come from? Where did we come from? What is the source of human dignity and value and worth? What's the source for right and wrong? Or even speaking to our race as one race, the human race, all of it finds its answers in the prologue in Genesis. Now, historically, Genesis has led to all kinds of scientific discussions, because when we read the book of Genesis, people immediately see a creation account and say, yeah, but hold on, Kev, when I was in school, I was taught the theory of evolution. And so now all of a sudden, you've got all of these arguments about fossil records, and, and you've got questions about carbon dating and all kinds of things like that. And what's interesting is those who've explored either of those theories come to a very interesting common denominator with both. And that is each of those theories in some ways are religious in nature. And I'll explain what I mean by religious in nature. There's a scholar by the name of James Montgomery Boyce. This is what he said. There's a kind of religion in science. It's the religion of a person who believes that there is an order and a harmony to the universe. Every event can be explained in a rational way as a product of some previous event. This religious faith of the scientists is violated by the discovery that the world had a beginning under conditions in which the known laws of physics are not valid. And as a product of the forces or circumstances, we cannot, therefore, discover... At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. Because the problem with the theory of evolution, by the way, is that evolution is impossible to replicate with a scientific method. It cannot be observed in a lab. It cannot be observed in nature, meaning transitional forms that a whale became a donkey. It's it's something that therefore, because of the nature of it, it has to be believed by faith. Mr. Boyce continues his quote by quoting another famous scholar, Who said, and therefore the scientific mind has scaled the mountains of ignorance and he's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) See, when we talk about the creation account in the early pages of Genesis, my hope is that by reading it, it brings you to a place of great humility and not to a place of great arrogance. A humility in the understanding that we have a God who is absolutely incredible. And the Bible isn't necessarily a scientific book, but that doesn't mean it doesn't speak to issues of science. It simply means that's not why it was written. And one scholar put it this way, the creation account is not unscientific, but rather pre-scientific, which means it predates modern science, not in the sense of having no interest in those types of questions, but rather that that's again, not the purpose of it being written. And so now we've got this book that is certainly not written to end all scientific debates. People with large brains have been arguing over these very chapters for centuries, but it's a real gift to us. In fact, if you want to understand the beauty and the nature of the gospel, you probably want Romans. That's, the, that's your go-to book. But if you want to raise your awe and wonder and mystery of our glorious God, I want the book of Genesis all day long. That's your go-to book. It's funny because last year before the fighting started, I got a chance to spend some time in Israel. When I was in Israel, uh, we were standing in front of the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, on, uh, just outside the Temple Mount. And I was standing there with one of our guides who has a Jewish background. And, and I knew this series was coming up. So I thought I should ask him some questions. And I said, hey man, hey, so Genesis chapter 1, this whole Genesis account, is it like, old earth? Or or is it like young earth? Or uh, what is it according to the Hebrew tradition? Does the word day mean like a literal 24-hour day? Or does it like mean an extended period of time? Like help me answer these questions because I'm getting ready to teach Genesis. And I mean like, like you're Jewish. Like you live here. Like you've been doing this stuff forever. All of your ancestors have been doing. Enlighten me, oh rabbi. And he looked at me uninterested in any of my questions, and he said, you Americans are all alike. That's how he started. He said, you're missing the major point of the book of Genesis. And I was like, like, what are you talking about? And he says, well, Kevin, what does Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 say? I said, in the beginning, God. He said, Exactly. I said, what you mean? He said, say it again. I said, in the beginning, God. And he said, exactly. Kevin, you are asking questions the Bible is not forcing you to ask. You're missing it. The Bible is inviting you into the narrative that in the beginning, God, that the entire cosmos begins with the very presence of God. That should be the focal point, not that other stuff. And I just stood there and thought, I'm not asking you any more questions because I feel stupid when I ask you questions. But you know, he was right. He was right. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, I hope you do, you're gonna need them for the whole series. Actually, you're going to need them every time you're in this church, so you should bring your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, very first page, this is how it all kicks off. Genesis chapter 1, the very first verse of the Bible is the framing verse for the entire Bible and for all of life. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God, and what do you do? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Part of the reason this verse is so important is because our world wants you to believe that your Bible starts out, in the beginning, you. Our world wants you to believe that your Bible starts out, in the beginning, me. Or maybe worse yet, in the beginning, nothing. But now you know that's not what it says. It says, in the beginning, nothing. God. And what we see in this passage is this incredible picture about this deity, God. And so you have to start with, well, what do we know about God? And to answer that question, we have to ask another question. And that question is, how do we know about God? Well, God has revealed himself partially in creation. He has revealed himself thoroughly through his word. And he has revealed himself perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again to make sure you understand. God has revealed himself to us partially through creation. He has revealed himself to you and I thoroughly in his word and perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the Bible speaks of the beginning of our universe, yet not the beginning of our God. You have people ask all the time, well, Kevin, who created God? Go into children's ministry. That's the, who, who created God? That's the question they ask. And you have to look back and go, I don't know. He has no beginning. He, he, he has no beginning of time. He was already there. When the cosmos, when the universe, when this world came into existence, and you say, well then, who is he? Who is this God? Well, the word for God used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is the word Elohim. Can you say Elohim? Elohim. Good, now you're all Hebrew Bible scholars, right? Elohim, that is the name used here of God, Elohim. It's a great name, Elohim. It's used 32 times. In just chapter one alone, which suggests that the author is trying to give you a little hint as to who the main character of the story is, and it's not you. Elohim is the center of the story. And so, who is Elohim? I think it's worth noting that Elohim is plural, that's a plural title. And so, this plural name denotes God's majesty. It denotes his transcendent relationship to creation. He is the quintessential expression of a heavenly being. God, unlike human beings, is without beginning, without opposition, and he is without limitation of power. That's who Elohim is. So, in the beginning was always our royal, majestic, plural God. Yes, plural, Uh uh-huh, plural. So it's one God in three persons, a triune God. Because if you look at Genesis chapter one, it says, in the beginning, Elohim, plural, created. And yet John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The Jehovah Witness changed that to say, The word was with God, and the word was a God. Very important you change that. Side note, I wasn't gonna share with you, but I'm gonna anyways, because it's on the live stream and whatever. So Jehovah Witnesses showed up at my house yesterday while I was working on this message. And I thought, yes, God exists. This is my dream. And so my wife gets up, answers the door, They're all Hispanic, and they only are talking to people who have Spanish speakers in their household. And I thought, God, you are not funny. (laughs) This is like my worst nightmare. I was so ready. I was so ready nothing. So there's that. Okay. Back to John chapter 1. It says, and the word was God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Colossians chapter 1 says, For in him, with him being Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." And there's plenty more places, and they all are going to tell us that nothing has come into being but that which has come into being through Jesus. He was in the beginning. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. How How did creation happen? Through the will of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the person and work of Jesus. That's how it goes together. And so you have God the Father present at creation. You have the Son present at creation. And if you look at verse 2, you're going to see the Spirit. Verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present. Our Elohim, triune, majestic, royal, royal plural God, in the beginning existed forever. That's how your Bible begins so much packed into so few verses. And here's what's cool. This, this, this God, this Elohim, triune, majestic, royal, plural God who has existed forever, a God who is self-sufficient in all things and is fully satisfied in himself, a God that requires absolutely nothing from no one, and yet as an expression of his grace, chose to do something profound. What did he choose to do? He chose to create. And what you find in Genesis chapter one, verse one, is a time creation, a person creation, a force creation, a space creation, and a matter creation. That's very critical because in the beginning, so that means there is time creation in the beginning. Historically, by the way, scientists used to believe in what was called a steady state theory, which simply meant that the universe always existed just from eternity past. It just kind of always was. And then fairly recently, they modified the theory to say, no, it sure looks like scientifically there's a beginning. Now they think that beginning had to do with some Big Bang theory. We know That there's always indeed been a beginning. Why? Because the Bible has always said that. There's never a day the Bible didn't say that, but it wasn't because of an accident. It was because of, in the beginning, God created. So it's a time creation. It's also a personal creation. Who created? God did a very personal god his name is also yahweh i am who i am that's yahweh that means personal god our personal god created which means it gives all of creation dignity and value and worth regardless regardless of your gender regardless of your race regardless of whether you're democrat or republican Mankind, creation, has value and dignity and worth. It's a forced creation. The word for create in this passage is the word barach. It's used of only of God. This is not some dude who's out in his workshop with some extra wood that's left over and out pops a wagon and he surprises himself. No, this is a God who created, flowing from who he was. And he created the heavens and the earth, and he created them intentionally on purpose. We have an on-purpose, intentional God. And now, starting in verse 3, the six days of creation begin. Interesting enough, one of the biggest questions, of course, in Genesis is, is this a literal 24-hour creation period, or does it allow for extended period of time? Now, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to talk something about the gap theory. Lots of conservative scholars speak to this. And it happens, the gap theory is placed between verse 1 and verse 2. So we're going to get there. But when you look here, the Hebrew word for day in the creation account is the word yom. Y-O-M. The word yom, when preceded by a numerical prefix, typically means a 24-hour period. And so this... This 24-hour period seems to be the clearest and easiest reading of Scripture that the creation account is indeed a six-day creation account, or seven days when he rested. And so part of the evidence is the repetition of the word yom. So you've got yom used in verse 5, 8, 13, 19, 23, and in 31, and it repeats itself saying, and there was evening And there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. Which gives an indication we're talking about a 24-hour period. It's also worth noting that the word yom is also used in Exodus chapter 20. When there's teaching about the Sabbath. It says, remember the Sabbath yom. And keep it holy. Six Yam, you shall labor from all your work, but on the seventh Yam, it's the Sabbath to the Lord, on that Yam, you should not work, for in six Yam, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, all that is in them, and on the seventh Yam, he rested. It seems to speak to a 24 hour day which is where the entire creation account starts to get really awesome. Look at verse 3. Let's talk about day one of creation, where he creates light and darkness. One more side note before we read it. I know you're dying right now. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. People argue about, oh, two separate creation stories. Genesis chapter 1 is written in a language, what's called historical narrative. It's chronologic. Genesis chapter two is thematic in unpacking the uh, crowning event of creation, and it's poetry. Poetry and historical narrative are not the same thing. If you ever read a, 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 a poem and you take that literally, something's wrong with you, okay? So you have to know the different kinds of things here. And so now, verse three, I promise. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And what's interesting is the first thing that God creates is light. But it's worth noting that it's not till day four... That the sun and the moon and the stars show up. So what is this light? Most scholars are going to tell you our God, with all of his glory, entered creation. That the light of Elohim shined all over creation from the very, very beginning. It's the light of the world. And therefore, the focal point of creation begins with his presence in it all. Verse 6, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So you have a spherical gathering of water now an expanse or vaulted place, call it atmosphere, if you will, and then a vapor canopy that surrounded it all, which comes into very significant importance when you get to Genesis chapter 6 and we get to the flood narrative. And so God creates this vapor canopy surrounding with atmosphere, this sphere of the earth that is formed. Listen to how Proverbs 8 talks about this exact day. It says, I, with I being wisdom, I was there when God put the skies in place, when he stretched the horizon over the oceans, when he made the clouds above and put the deep underground springs in place. I was there when he ordered the sea not to go beyond the borders he had set. I was there when he laid the earth's foundation, sphere, atmosphere, vapor canopy. That's day two. And you thought the creation story is only in Genesis? We need to make sure we read our Bibles. Day three starts in verse nine, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed, according to their kinds. You should underline that phrase, according to their kinds. The trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. No continents yet. Not like we see today. And that's going to change drastically when we get to the flood narrative. But there's certainly land masses created here. Psalm 104 speaks to this exact day. You covered the earth with oceans. The water was above the mountains, but at your command, the water rushed away. When you thundered your orders, it hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank, the water went to the places you made for it. You set borders for the seas that they cannot cross, so water will never cover the earth again. You make springs, pour into the ravines, they flow between the mountains. So again, speaking of creation, specifically of dry land. Now, in verse 10, you'll notice that God saw what he had created. And he saw that it was good. And when you read the word good, don't think like, it's pretty good. No, it actually means he paused with delight. I don't know when you do that in your life, but when something gets, sometimes after mowing our lawns, and all the lines go the right way. We pause with delight. Look at what my hands have done. (laughs) Sort of like that, I guess. Sort of like that. He delights in his creation, which is a, a theme I would suggest you underline because it happens over and over again. What he made was good. No conflict. Perfect existence, perfect creation in his presence. And you'll notice as you continue to read through this concept of good is repeated. Verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, and in verse 31 you get the bonus. Not only is it good in verse 31, it is very good. It is really good. This concept of good is being repeated also in verse 11, things that are created are created according to what? Good, you're better than first service already. They're created, I need you to say it with me, they're created how? According to their kinds. Yeah, I even put it on the screen, so as long as you can read. Very important you understand that that's what he did, which means an apple tree produces what? Apples. Perfect. So it doesn't require a rocket scientist to know that. Now, I know some weirdos in our world today took a plum and an apricot and kind of grabbed and called them plum cots. Have you seen these things? That scares me. But, you know, but the idea is fruit trees produce fruit. And so the idea is you should not be surprised if a dog gives birth to what? A dog. Yeah, that shouldn't shock you. Why? Because everything reproduces after its kind. That is the design of God, and he uses it seven times exactly on purpose to say it reproduces itself perfectly. Anything that reproduces outside of that is an abnormality because of sin. It's not in the original design. Now that is distinct, by the way, from adaptation. So are animals today different than what they were centuries ago? Sure. Sure, an owl, though, is still an owl. An owl may have changed colors, perhaps, because of its environment. That's adaptation. That's different than evolution. An owl didn't become a cat. That's evolution. So the Bible produces this concept of it repeating and reproducing after its own kind. It uses this phrase, the perfect number because it's emphasizing God's order and design in creation. And what he ordered and designed is perfect. Now comes day four. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, that's the moon. He also made the stars. It's like an afterthought, isn't it? Oh, by the way, he made stars. <laughs> Verse 17, God set them in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Quick question, how large is the knowable universe? Do you know? It's big, yeah, it's big. So I don't know if you think about stupid things like that. I do that when I'm walking my dog. And so I have this thing on my phone called Google, and I thought I would ask Google. Google popped up, 93 billion light years across. That's how big. 93 billion light years across in diameter. And I thought, I don't even have a category for that. And it's estimated that in our universe, there are two trillion, with the T, two trillion galaxies, and each galaxy has between 100 and 400 billion, with a B, stars in them. Do the math. Break your phone real quick. Your phone's going to say, Recomputing? You know, it doesn't know how to handle any of that stuff. And I want you now to look back at verse 16 with that in mind, and it says, Oh, uh, and he also made the stars. Oh, by the way, It's like an afterthought. You know, he's like, you know what? It's kind of dark in here. Bam, stars. (laughs) Trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. As an afterthought. At the end of a phrase, how great and how good and how powerful is our God to be able to create in perfect positioning every star that has ever been made in an instant like that. That's mind-blowing. And have you ever wondered why the sun and the moon and the stars were even created? Like, was God was like, it's kind of dark in here, and I can't seem to find the Holy Spirit. So I need some light, and so I need a sun, I guess, or I need a moon. No, that's not what he was thinking at all. So for whom was all of this created? The sun with all of its warmth and all of its seasons. The moon with all of its tides the stars with all of their navigational properties all of them in perfect place all of which was done not for god cuz he's in need of nothing he needed none of it he made it for us he made it for he created all of it with all of its specificity for you he created it in perfect harmony with exacting precision it was designed and created and placed with perfect harmony for us that's what our god did but he didn't stop there look at verse 20 day 5 and god said let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky so god created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and god saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Scientists say there's 228,000 species in our ocean. They also say that 90% of our oceans are currently unexplored. And so they're estimating that there are two million species just in the oceans of which uh, three-fourths of them or 750,000 of them we don't even know exist. We don't even know exist. We haven't even found them yet. All created with specificity and intentionality by this majestic, powerful, good, plural triune God. Point seven million species of living creatures. Not a bad day's work. If you ever feel unproductive at work, don't read this day. Right? Very productive. And I want you to think about this. So the nobility of all of creation— of sunrises and sunsets, of beaches and mountains and deserts and rivers, the plains and the glaciers, the eagles, the falcons and the giraffes, the hippos and the hummingbirds, the sharks and otters, all so creative, all so beautiful, all so good, and yet none of it was his prize. He is saving his best for last. And what he creates on top of all of that, something that bears more value than anything he has created thus far, begins in verse 26. Verse 26, then God said, as the crescendo of it all, let us, do you hear the Trinity there? Let us make mankind in our, not my, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Now there's a whole group of people that's taken that verse and said we all should be vegetarians. And just to be clear, at this point we were. But that's going to change in just a few weeks when a new covenant arise. Verse 30, And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And up until this point, everything was good. But now, verse 31, God God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so our God, when mankind was created, says, there is nothing in all of creation like you, because you have been made in my image. You reflect my image. And so whenever you see mankind, regardless of their political party, regardless of how they self-identify, regardless of whatever circumstances in their life, regardless of their race, their socioeconomics, all of that pales into comparison to the fact that they still reflect the image of our God. And next week we're going to see how fearfully And wonderfully made we actually are. That we are actually handmade by our creator who creates us with innate dignity and value and worth. Charged to represent God. We are his stewards of his creation and we're called to rule and delight in him and to delight in one another. But we're going to get all into that next week. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. He delights and enjoys and establishes something beautiful for his people, which you're going to look at next week, something called the Sabbath. So, the creation account found in your Bible in multiple places, by the way, answers some of the most profound questions of life. How did this world come into existence? In the beginning, God. Yeah, and so who is the source of right and wrong? where did we come from in the beginning, God? What's the origin of good and evil? What is the heritage of our race in the beginning, God? It all comes back to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What an incredible God we serve. Church, never forget that every sunset that we want to go out to the beach and watch, but we never do because we live in St. Pete, Every mountain range, every starry night, every cool breeze, every, every warm summer night, it all declares the goodness and the greatness of our God, whether you're there to see it or not. It's all telling of the glory of our God and that it's not an accident. The world wants you to think that this place came into existence by an accident, but your Bible says the exact opposite. It says that all of creation screams the glory and the majesty and the power and the wisdom of Elohim. Whether you feel valued or not, it doesn't matter how you feel because he created you. In the very nature of the fact that you and I are image bearers of the Almighty, plural, royal, majestic, triune God who always was from the very beginning, we bear His image, regardless of what TikTok says about you, regardless of what your family says about you, because there are friends and people in your life saying you are not worth it, you are not good enough, you have no value, you have no dignity. There's no honor for you. Your Bible says the exact opposite. I have value and worth and dignity because of him. This world has nothing for me. Romans chapter one says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Because when you look at creation, whether it's land or sea, or the creatures on the land, or the creatures in the sea, or the birds of the air, if you look at you and I, when you see the birth of your own child, or you watch the birth of your grandchild, you watch that and you go, yeah, that's not right. Like, that just doesn't happen on accident. That is amazing. That is uh, astounding. That's not an oops. There is something happening that's bigger than me, and Elohim, creator, and mighty God goes, yeah, yeah, you're so right. What's happening is so much bigger than you because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and by his grace, he did all of it for you. He did all of it for you. He did it so our taste buds could enjoy what they enjoy. That we would have the opportunity to see what we see in all of its splendor and beauty, to feel what we feel in those moments of created transcendence where you see something so profound that, that you stand there in silence and you stand there humbled before it, going, God, you are beyond belief. I got nothing. And you stand in awe and you're so thankful for an almighty, all powerful, in control. Elohim. And that same God did it all for you. Why? Because God so loved the world. The gospel, according to Genesis. Because he loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. And the creation account is meant to bring you to your knees in a sense of awe and wonder and mystery and majesty. Oh church, what a great God we serve.